This is Make Yourself at Home, a BizNow podcast where we discuss the world of real estate in the current crisis. I'm Miriam Hall, I'm BizNow's New York reporter. Today, our guest is Bobby Turner, the founder of Turner Impact Capital. It's a social impact firm that has more than $3 billion in investment potential, which it is aiming to use to address some of the country's biggest problems through real estate. Bobby stresses that impact investing is not an asset class and it's not philanthropy. He says it's not a new economic system that will replace capitalism. It's investing based on the thesis that making change is good for business and it is possible to generate yield. In fact, in the company's rental portfolio, by focusing on creating communities where people want to stay, he says they've managed to keep rents down, increase lease terms and grow NOI. I asked him how this pandemic could shift the approach to impact investing. I think this crisis will confirm the thesis that the underlying demand for community-enriching infrastructure is huge, it's growing, and candidly, Miriam, it's less correlated to the broader market indices and economic conditions. Think about it. What's happened to the demand for retail space, for office space, for hospitality? And then think about the demand for affordable housing, community-serving health care, and K-12 public education. Uh, simply put, this crisis will validate the thesis um, that impacting, impact investing, investing in densely populated, ethnically diverse communities is smart investing that will drive both defensive alpha and diversification for anyone's portfolio. So if you can, do the back of the envelope style walkthrough. Talk us through how it works from a property point of view, from entry to exit. That's right. So I think the first thing is to recognize that not every issue is treatable with a market-driven solution. So as an impact investor, you've got to first recognize that only certain issues are identifiable, quantifiable, and mitigatable with market-driven risks or market-driven solutions. By way of example, teenage pregnancy. Um, we operate or we've built 117 public charter schools over the last seven years in our, in our charter school fund uh, for 58,000 kids. Um, we have a challenge and a problem with teenage pregnancy. Um, notwithstanding, I've yet to figure out how to make money off of teenage pregnancy and or um, childhood obesity. Um, so let's talk about one of the challenges, affordable housing, and how you can address that with a sustainable market-driven solution. And I'm not talking about low-income housing for those who earn below 60% of the average median income, uh, who can't candidly qualify for Section 8 or subsidized housing, but rather for those employees, those working families that earn between 60 and 120% of the AMI, those essential service providers like policemen, teachers, firemen, healthcare workers who make too much money to qualify for subsidized housing, but not enough for, uh, for home ownership or luxury rentals. And I think we can all agree that there's a problem. Communities, household well-being, and the environment and worker productivity all suffer when housing is not proximate to employment, education, and healthcare resources. Um, so let's start with the fundamentals. Uh, there's 43 million renter households in America today. That number will grow by nearly 4 million over the next 10 years, primarily immigrants and people of color. One out of two, nearly 22 million renter households are rent burdened, spending over a third of their income on rent. And one out of four, or nearly 12 million, are severely rent burdened, spending upwards many times of 60% of their income on rent. And that's coming at the expense of food security, health security, education, retirement security. And quite candidly, it's coming at the expense of hope. And it's just not sustainable. So I think like most investors, the obvious solution is let's just attract private capital to build new affordable workforce housing. Unfortunately, as many people know, the solution is not that simple. 
Because given the cost of land and labor and hard costs, a for-profit developer like myself cannot build new construction, charge an affordable rent, say 30% of the average median income, and make a market rate return. In most instances, the parameters yield less than a 2% return on investment. That is not enough to drive private capital into these marketplaces. So again, the problem is huge, the demand is growing, and there's no new supply. And what really attracted me to this market was the disheartening fact that the existing supply of workforce housing was actually shrinking. Because every time B and C quality properties or subsidized properties are coming off their compliance period, when they're coming to the market, these properties are being bought by more opportunistic investors who are either employing a demolish and build new uh, investment strategy, or they're being purchased uh, and these uh, investors are improving these properties uh, with new bathrooms and new kitchens, new common areas, and they're increasing rents to get a return on their capital. And while I haven't yet figured out how to build new product and generate a market return, I have been able to figure out how to buy existing stock, preserve its affordability, and at the same time generate a market rate return. And it's very simple. First, we all have to agree that if we want to generate market rate returns but don't want to do it by increasing rents, then our only option is to reduce expenses. Um, one thing I learned from 23 years of investing in urban communities is that the biggest expense of owning and operating workforce housing is turnover. Let's be serious, no one works two jobs a day, comes home to a shoddy apartment in a shoddy neighborhood, uh, spends 60% sometimes uh, of their income on rent and says, God, I love living here. Fact is, is that there's no pride in rendership, which leads to a transiency and an average lease duration of 24 months. So our business model is based on the very simple idea that if we could create a pride in rentership by enriching a property with relevant community services, by maintaining rents at an affordable level, then our tenants would stay longer and treat a property better, which in turn would drive down maintenance, insurance, and economic loss, which would enable us to drive profits without increasing rents. So in practice, every time I buy a property, we set aside a percentage of our units and we subsidize housing for relevant service providers who in return for reduced and or free rent provide essential services to help build a sense of community. These services are things like education, where we recruit uh, public school teachers to live in our properties in return for subsidized rent. They provide after school tutoring. Um, we provide discounted rent for uh, law enforcement agents and their families in return for the discounted rent. Um, what they pay us in kind is they park their squad cars out front, which in turn is an incredible disincentive uh, for a drug dealer to do and transact business in your property. They're required to live in our properties, uh, make their presence known, and organize and oversee community watch programs. And finally, we subsidize housing for healthcare providers, where we recruit healthcare workers to oversee health fairs, exercise classes. They could be cooking classes or maybe flu shot drives. Now, while most of our tenants are already paying uh, upwards of 30, 35% of their income on rent, which is a lot, none of our tenants could afford to pay for these additional services, leading to the simple facts that unless our tenants have to move, they don't. And while enriching a community is interesting in theory, let me give you some encouraging metrics as we've vetted out and proven out over the last decade. In just the past five years, we've purchased 28 properties comprising over 10,000 units. To date, we've enriched these communities with over 80,000 program participant hours of education, safety, and healthcare programming. And to date, we've been able to drive our tenant satisfaction from below 30% to today, we sit about just about 95%. And in turn for this new, newfound tenant satisfaction or pride in rentership, that has led to an increase in profits by a way of a 30% increase in lease terms 
People are no longer just living there for 24 months. They're now living there for three years, and that lease term continues to increase with each passing month. We've experienced a 30% reduction in incidences, a 17% drop in economic loss, all leading to nearly a 7.8% growth in NOI, uh, exclusive of um, property taxes uh, and insurance, and basically, we're forecasting a 10.3% net return to all investors over the life of the fund, all without increasing rents. This is doing good by doing well. This is social impact investing at its best. So it's that they don't want to leave. You make it nice for them. They don't want to leave. They feel like they've got a sense of community. They feel a, a sense of pride of where they live. They don't want to leave. Therefore, it generates returns without jacking up the rents, put bluntly. That's correct. So something that's on the mind of a lot of renters and is very much in the forefront of, of, of the news at the moment is this concern about a wave of evictions. Across the country, there's been a lot of moratoriums on evictions during the crisis. A lot of them are due to expire and a lot of um, landlords in various states are suing to try and have those moratoriums overturned. First of all, have you given any thought to how this is going to affect communities? So we think about it all the time. Because as a social impact investor, we are continuously balancing the desire to do good and to do well. But first and foremost, we recognize that our primary responsibility is as a fiduciary to our investors, and our primary goal is to make money for our investors. So it's a fine, it's, it's not a science, it's an art of balancing the two. Now, I will tell you that for us, um, our first line of defense uh, has always been to improve the over, overall resident standing situation through programming targeting. So we've enriched our communities with education, financial literacy, access to vocational training, and credit improvement so that our tenants are in a position to pay rent. In fact, of our 10,000 units, less than 2% have asked for any kind of rent relief and or rent payment programs over the last uh, four or five months. Uh, secondly, uh, is we connect our residents with resources that provide direct subsidies for rent and other expenses, i.e. or e.g. medical, utility, as well as other benefits, unemployment and stimulus benefits. This includes us helping them navigate oftentimes the most confusing labyrinths uh, to apply for and track the process of the request. Third, we, we connect our residents to program partners that provide uh, rental, um, rental uh, advances that are less costly to alternative payday lenders. Uh, fourth, uh, we do accommodate uh, those who have exhausted their resources and continue to experience hardship by entering into structured payment plans that consider both the amount and term of how the deferred rents will be repaid based upon the individual circumstances. And ultimately, Miriam, if a tenant is unable uh, to meet any uh, of the requirements, um, we will have to execute and pursue evictions because, again, we have a primary responsibility to drive market rate returns for our investors. Uh, notwithstanding, what we would do is we would, we would prioritize units that were already in the queue for eviction even prior to COVID-19. Um, we are finding there is a universe of tenants who have decided, even if they still have their jobs, to take this opportunity not to pay their rents. So those that were in default or those that can afford to pay rent and just have decided not to, those obviously would be our first uh, area where we would evict. Uh, secondly, we would be quick. Uh, we would we would evict units that would be quickly released uh, to other workforce targeted demographics in need of affordable housing. I think one of the good things is what we take great comfort in is, is our average rent in our portfolio is nine hundred dollars per month, 
And in fact, if, and, and many of our tenants have received the stimulus package, over the last three months, many tenants have collected $600 a week, tax-free, in additional stimulus payments, or approximately $7,200, which should give our residents a pretty good cushion over the next five or six months uh, to the extent that there is not a re-upping of the stimulus program. But at the end of the day, it is a fine line that we worry about every day. We believe that we've got a number of, of, of first relief programs uh, in place, but ultimately, um, as a social impact investor, we will have to um, uh, execute eviction notices uh, at some point if uh, uh, all other things have failed. How many people do you think that that's going to affect? I mean, are you talking hundreds, thousands, a dozen? Uh, we're anticipating less than 2% of our portfolio. And we're hoping that'll be none. I mean, obviously you're hoping for none, but it could be more, maybe 2% of your portfolio. Is that how? how so that's 200 units. A single unit is one too many for me. And for the vast majority of the people that we have working at Turner Impact Capital, we've come here to do good and do well, and it is disheartening when we're not able to do both collectively. This is a unique and difficult time in the country. Uh, it's a period of crisis, uh, and uh, you know, uh, legacies are defined by how we behave during crises. What do you think about landlords suing to have moratoriums overturned, claiming they're unconstitutional? Do you think that's the right approach? Um, it is an approach. It is not an approach that I would necessarily pursue, uh, but one has to wear both hats as an investor. Um, while the government has relieved tenants of the responsibility, well, they haven't relieved tenants, but they have uh, excluded or foreclosed landlords from the rights to evict tenants that are not paying rent, at the same time, landlords are still responsible for paying real estate taxes for their mortgages, for their insurance, uh, and it creates a real uh, quagmire for any investor. Um, at some point, the landlord will have to reduce expenses, uh, will either have to default on their mortgage and go through foreclosure, and then the ability to maintain a sense of community disappears, or they'll have to reduce services. Uh, and amenities at a property. So it really is a, a, a lose-lose situation where we sit right now. Uh, and I just think we have to be innovative, think out of the box. Uh, but again, it, it's still, for me, what this is doing, it is truly highlighting just how vulnerable uh, a huge swath of this country is to economic crises, pandemics, or other unforeseen or unanticipated emergencies. And this goes into what we're going to do and how we're going to approach uh, using business as a force for good over the next 10, 20, 30 years and reduce the number of people that candidly are families that are living in survival mode. It is just not sustainable. An interesting piece of this is that Turner is, is a private equity shop. How does that work if you're creating a community, if, if you're building long-term homes for people, if you're just getting your returns and then leaving? I mean, how do you make sure who whoever takes over has got the right intention or is going to continue your, your work. So for, by way of example, I mean, let me first by start first by saying uh, we are not your typical private equity firm. Uh, we do believe in driving profits. Uh, that is our job. That is our mission. But we don't believe that it has to come at the expense of social good. I think we are in a position where we can refute the, the naysayers of social impact that assume that we will sacrifice yield 
uh, by doing good by society. The fact is, is that our returns absolutely refute those ideas. And the fact is, is that we're able to generate better uh, risk-adjusted returns and more traditional investment strategies because we're not speculating. When you think about today, what, what greater environment than a pandemic to demonstrate how, how social impact can create defensive alpha for a portfolio? When you look at the operators and owners of retail, of hospitality, of office, uh, their rent rolls have absolutely been impacted. Uh, in many instances, you read that retail rent collections are only about 15 to 20 percent. Uh, that is because the underlying demand for those services is wildly correlated uh, to the broader economic conditions. Uh, when we look at how our portfolio of healthcare, of education, of housing is performing, um, we have seen very little disruption uh, in our rent collections. In fact, our education funds have collected 100% of our rents, our healthcare funds have collected 100% of our rents, and our housing funds on average have collected nearly 97% of the rents over the last four months, just proving that the demand is strong and growing and uncorrelated to the broader indices. So we are not your traditional private equity firm. We think a little differently. Profits and purpose can and do play nicely in the sandbox. So how long do you hold things for? Well, it depends on the fund. So in our healthcare and our school funds, we actually have a very innovative business model where we are a bridge to ownership. We build incredible facilities for best-in-class public charter school operators, as well as best-in-class clinically proven providers of value or outcome-based healthcare. Uh, we enter into long-term triple net leases, but once these not-for-profit and sometimes for-profit organ organizations uh, have four or five years of both operational and clinical and or academic track record, we enable them to purchase the facilities from us by accessing cheaper cost of capital in the municipal bond market. So in fact, we have a built-in exit strategy that ensures the ongoing productivity of this infrastructure for the public good. In our housing fund, uh, unfortunately, we don't have that opportunity or the option to uh, sell the property, the portfolio to uh, our residents. But what we plan to do is roll up our funds, probably 20,000 units within the next two years, and take it public on the New York Stock Exchange so that we do have a permanent capital source that will be serviced by our, our, our captive property management company and maintain the preservation of affordability while driving profits by driving a pride and rentership. So that would mean you wouldn't have to get rid of the, the investments. That's correct. We do not plan to ever not manage the portfolio that we built in the communities uh, that we're enriching. You know, the biggest thing um, or the biggest news in social impact investing over the past couple of years has been the opportunity zones. And I have been reading that they have garnered more interest lately as in the midst of this crisis. You have um, been quite public in your, I, I suppose the words, disdain for opportunity zones. Has the pandemic shifted your um, view at all? Oh, uh, listen, I, I don't disdain opportunity zones whatsoever. I disdain the process in which the legislation watered down the effectiveness of the legislation. Mm -hmm. I, I applaud any uh, legislation or initiative uh, that would stimulate capital flows into underserved communities. I think, however, the opportunity zone legislation, by the time it got through partisan politics, fell short on its promise to uplift those historically neglected that live in the communities and suffer the injustices of social determination. Number one is I think it had the wrong incentive structure. Let's start by recognizing that these are markets that have traditionally been neglected or overlooked by institutional capital due to the risks or perceived risks associated with investing in underserved communities. 
And unlike the empowerment zones, uh, the enterprise zones, and the LIHTC programs of the 80s, uh, which I grew up in, um, that attracted billions by reducing the risk to investors to invest in these communities, the Opportunity Zone legislation looks to increase the rewards by allowing an investor to defer taxes and eliminate, avoid capital gains or new appreciation if an investment is held for more than a decade. But let's be serious. One might ask, what good is a capital gain break if the investment is likely to lose money? Number two, it was exclusive, the program, because the benefits are only available to investors that have unrealized capital gains to invest. Now, the reality is, is if we're really serious or really wanted to attract the vast majority of capital that goes into real estate, we would have created a program that would incentivize all investors, including those that didn't have capital gains. Uh, to roll. The biggest investors in real estate are sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, endowments, and foundations who candidly are all tax exempt and do not benefit from the incentives whatsoever. And finally, and for me as an impact investor, where I think the legislation really, really, I don't want to say fell down, but where it should have been stronger, was there's nothing in the legislation that requires an investment to be for the benefit of local residents. So you think it's a, just a tax dodge for a bunch of rich people, basically, to offset their capital gains? I think the vast majority of the money's going into those areas will be. But listen, there are a number of great Opportunity Zone funds. Uh, you know, there's the Catalyst Fund that was uh, anchored by Jim Sorensen and his group out of Utah. I mean, these are truly dedicated impact investors, and they will use this to the best of their possibilities. But one of their challenges may or may not be is just raising capital because there's just, again, a limited universe of investors that have long-term capital gains that they want to roll and at the same time invest in underserved, historically neglected communities. The pandemic has really, um, I guess, forced people into a period of self-examination. And I know when you embarked on Turner Capital in 2013, you, you were previously at Canyon Capital. So this was a step forward out on your own to create your own thing. How did you kind of decide to do that and, and navigate that mental shift? So I think that throughout my career, you know, I realized that I um, was incredibly lucky. Um, and I like to think of myself looking back as an evolved capitalist and an enlightened philanthropist because early in my career, I was your typical Wall Street capitalist. And I was also an optimistically naive philanthropist and I struggled at both as a capitalist in the 80s, I worked for an investment bank and then eventually went on to become a partner in one of the world's largest alternative investment funds, uh, where over time, I realized that making money as the primary and candidly sole metric of my accomplishments just wasn't enough for me. So I guess in a desire to gain balance and have a positive impact on other people's lives, I started increasing my focus on philanthropy, where I also struggled because as a philanthropist, I supported a myriad of non-for-profits focused on social justice and equality, and I quickly came to realize that the vast majority of the organizations I was funding were really only putting band-aids on issues. They were reactive, not proactive. They weren't accountable. There were no clear and measurable impact, and in many instances, we were just funding legacies of dependency. So nearly 20 years ago in my career, I concluded that if you wanted to treat a problem, then the government and philanthropy are fine. But if you wanted to cure, really cure, you had to harness market forces to create durable solutions uh, and yet profitable solutions. My first initiative was a canyon where I launched a series of funds with Magic Johnson back in 1998. We went on to raise $3 billion of private equity capital, uh, which facilitated nearly $6 billion 
of, of groundbreaking, uh, community-changing infrastructure. We were able to drive meaningful social change and at the same time drive strong market-driven returns for our investors. Uh, and I was really excited about the change I was making, both profits and purpose, but I did find myself when I turned 50, I found myself wanting to make, if not needing to make more. And that is when I, I did leave Canyon after 23 years uh, to build Turner Impact Capital. And you know we're amazed to see the growth. In just under six years, we've grown to 257 employees, of which 90% are diverse, meaning non-white men. We're 50% women, meaning, I guess, non-men. And our diversity doesn't stop at gender or race. It expands to issue expertise, where in addition to recovering bankers, we have former public school teachers and primary care physicians and law enforcement agents each possessing unique knowledge that's critical to identifying, quantifying, and mitigating both the financial and social risks of an investment in an urban community. What's your advice to someone who might be thinking, hey, I want to make a change in my life right now. I maybe want to go out on my own or I want to try something new. Um, listen, I think if anything, this pandemic has impressed on us all uh, just how fragile and random life is. You know, when I turned 50, my daughter came home from high school one day and asked me, as part of a, an assignment, what did I want my epitaph to read? Uh, and of course, I, I looked at her and said, uh, you know, I said, sweetheart, uh, daddy went to the Wharton School. I have no idea what the word epitaph means. So do help me out. And she told me, you know, what did I want my, my tombstone to read? And it was clear to me when I was 22 years old and, and freshly out of undergraduate business school, that I wanted my epitaph to read that daddy had the most change in his pocket when he died. I wanted to be rich, but with life comes wisdom. And over time, I've had many losses, be them financial losses or emotional losses and friendships. Uh, and I realized that, you know, at this point in my life when I was 50, no longer did I want to have the most change in my pocket. I wanted to make the most change in the world. And she goes, well, what are you doing about that? She goes, because you're the one who always says, your great friend and partner, Andre Agassi says, it's easy for most people to dream while they're asleep, but it's those that have the courage to dream while they're awake that will change the world. So dad, why are you not living and practicing what you preach? And that gave me the courage. This isn't your first crisis. Uh, what have you learned from your previous experiences and what's your advice for handling something like this? Uh, it's not easy. Being an entrepreneur is never easy. It comes with huge responsibility and particularly in crises, I mean, how do, you, how do you navigate a crisis? Uh, you know, I'm fortunate in the sense that this is now my fifth crisis in 35 years, starting back you know, early on in my career where I experienced the stock market crash of 87, then the junk bond market crash in 1990. Later, I lived through the 9-11 attacks and the dot-com bust, then the Great Recession, and now this. And I think that from these experiences, I can tell you uh, that a significant amount of, and from a significant amount of pattern recognition, that the firms or, or the leaders that always perform the best during these times are ones that, number one, lead proactively, recognizing that hope is not a strategy and time is not your friend. Number two, leadership and, and, and the ones that survive are the ones that operate transparently, communicating frequently, not just with your shareholders, your partners, but your employees, your investors, your lenders, your vendors and your tenants and your residents. And number three, I think the firms that draw upon what I like to refer to their AQ or adaptability quotient 
are those that really thrive. Time and time again, I've seen that while IQ and EQ are important character traits of navigating turbulent times, it's the ability to adapt, to quickly get comfortable being uncomfortable that ultimately differentiates those that survive from those that thrive in times of crisis. Bobby, thank you so much for making time and chatting with us on the podcast. I really appreciate it. It is truly, Mary, my pleasure. I'm always grateful for the opportunity and the platform that you provide me. And, you know, I just hope that, uh, you know, people recognize that social impact investing, without a doubt, uh, has really just never been more critical to the future of this country. And equally, it's never been more rewarding as an investor.